Coming up next, director Daniel Ferens, the man responsible for the most controversial film of the season, The Haunting of Sharon Tate. Adam and I discuss our recent trip to L.A. and dozens of movie locations, our thoughts on the current releases in theaters, plus March Blu-rays. It's all coming up next on Movie Geeks United. Tuning into Movie Geeks United. I am Jamie and I'm here joined by Adam. Hey, buddy. Hello, hello, everybody. We got some uh, exciting talk coming up. It's been a little while since we've been on the air, but uh, Adam and I finally met face to face and we actually vacationed together. So we got some colorful, colorful stories to tell a little later <laughs> on in the show. <laughs> but uh, we do. Of course. First of all, let's do our interview for tonight. Daniel Ferens was a guest on our show uh, several years ago uh, because uh, he he comes from the world of kind of fan-based uh, horror appreciation documentaries, and he made something like a seven-hour documentary on the Friday the 13th franchise. That was the last time we spoke with him. And he did a, a number of other films in that vein, but he has branched out uh, to direct his own films, and uh, last, uh, last earlier this year, he did the Amityville Murders, or last year, the Amityville Murders. And then uh, he produced The Haunting of Connecticut, in Connecticut. And uh, his new film is called The Haunting of Sharon Tate. And uh, it's gotten a lot of uh, controversy swirling around it uh, for good reason. Is it uh, is the arti- mostly revolving around is the artistic license in the film. Uh, offensive. Uh, so, uh, but we discussed the film and his thoughts on putting it all together in this interview. This is Daniel Ferens. The film is The Haunting of Sharon Tate, and it is available now in select theaters and on VOD platforms. It's the time of the season. Love runs high. Five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead. I was like I was caught in something that I had no control over. I had absolutely no say-so as to what was happening there. I was just like a tool in the hands of the devil. It's the only way I can put it. Just so <laughs> Told you before. You've got the wrong house. Yeah, cool, man. Who is that? Well, number one, I was absolutely not interested in making a, a movie about 
Charles Manson or the family or um, putting any more of a spotlight on the madness of that group of people that than has already been given in you know many movies and documentaries shows and, and stuff over the over the past fifty years. So um, I was more interested in the victims. Um, lives, of who they were as people, um, who Sharon Tate was, who Jay Sebring was, who Wojtek Tarkowski and Abigail Folger and certainly young Stephen Parent, you know, and, and that particular group of people. Um, and in my research, I came across uh, an interview. It was actually published in Fate magazine when, when Sharon Tate was interviewed on the, on the set of one of her films. And the reporter asked if she'd ever had any psychic experiences. And her answer was yes, that she thought she had. And she went on to describe either a, a vision or a nightmare in which she had described seeing a creepy, strange man in the house and following him into the living room where she discovered either herself or her friend Jay Sebring tied up um, and having their throats cut open. And whether or not this was actually a premonition of her own death, it was very eerie, but it also creatively sparked something in me. And that was sort of the genesis of, of the project. Um, I thought not so much a, a, a retelling of the true crime because it has already been done. It's being done in several other films now. Um, but I, it, it made me ponder these questions of the afterlife more than anything, to be honest, and, and whether or not our, our stories are, are preordained, are they written prior to us coming into this realm of this, into, into this life, or do we have some providence over that? Do we have some control over our own destiny? And I yeah. thought, furthermore, a story set in, in limbo and purgatory would be really an interesting way to do it because you could not only tell the story in a completely different way, but you could also change fate if, if the characters were empowered to do so. Yeah. And other than that interview uh, you read with her about the, the psychic uh, phenomenon that she experienced, were there any particular books mm -hmm. or anything that mm -hmm. informed who these people were to you? Sure. Oh, I mean, of course, I wanted to revisit the, the facts of the story and what better book, one of the most comprehensively written, thorough uh, examinations of any crime, uh, Helter Skelter, uh, written by Vincent Bugliosi, who, who was the prosecutor in the case. Um, so that was, you know, an incredible resource because I got to really become more intimately knowledgeable about the, the facts of what went on in the days leading up to, and, you know, certainly it, it gets into the trial, it gets into the, you know, the psychology of the Manson family, all of that. But I was sort of focused more on the parts of the book that had to do with, with the crime and, and, you know, sort of that, the, 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 um, the sequence of events. Um, but putting that aside, I watched several documentaries, biographies on Sharon Tate's life. Um, there was one in particular was made by the studio, um, MGM, I believe that you know they would also a lot of times make these talent reels of like these up and coming young stars, and it was interesting mm -hmm. to me the way that they were grooming her for stardom, um, where she was this very kind of in a way, and came from a very simple background. Her father was a military man, the family traveled around the world, um, and she never really had a home base. She was born in Texas, so I think her family had those very traditional sort of Southern values she was raised with. Um, 
but, you know, Sharon saw brighter lights in her life and, and she, you know, made her way to Hollywood at a young age. So it was, and she was finding success yeah. in her career. She's been nominated for a, a Golden Globe for Valley of the Dolls. And I think she kind of understood that people saw her as this kind of, you know, the body, the object, <laughs> you know, they objectified her and she understood that. But I think there was, you know, a deeper need in her to be taken seriously and to tend to be hopefully down the road offered parts that were, you know, a little more substantive than what she was being offered at the time. Yeah. There's this great book by Greg King uh, about uh, Sharon Tate that I, that I read and it was so instructive about yes. her. Um, and and yep. another thing I want to ask you about, because your film, I mean, we can talk about the backstories of each of these real-life people, but your film is it takes place in a very concentrated period of time, like three days or, or something. Mm-hmm. So you have to right. weave in yep. this kind of information in regular casual conversation between the characters, the backstory. Right, right. Is that a, yeah. is that a difficult yep. thing, not yep. to hit it too hard on the head? Well, sure. You know, I mean, of course, you know, you're having to compress time. You're having to compress information so that the audience gets that, uh, you know, part of the story. But, you know, you want to handle it, hopefully, not into a too clumsy of a way. Um, but, you know, I think in a way what opened it up and made it a little safer to, to impart some of these, these pieces of information was that Sharon had just returned from this extended trip away from home. And was getting reacquainted, you know, not only with where she lived in the house in Cielo Drive for very long when they were called away to these various projects overseas. So coming home to her was almost like coming to the house for the first time, I would imagine. So it was okay to reacquaint herself with the house and and catch up with the people who'd been house-sitting for her. And and it gave me an opportunity to kind of drop some of those interesting factoids about her life um, into those early conversations in the film. Did you uh, actually shoot uh, up in the Hollywood Hills for this? We did. We did. Um, as, you, as you probably know, you seem to be uh, pretty knowledgeable on the topic. Um, the real house in Cielo Drive had been raised back in the early, mid-90s, and now a giant McMansion is in its place. Um, yes. Nor would we That's have terrible. attempted to shoot the movie <laughs> in the real location. I know, I know. And it's not a very attractive McMansion. I don't think, um, given how peaceful it all, you know, it really was such a beautiful, I mean, she, Sharon Tate, you probably know, called it her love house. And, and you could tell mm-hmm. why, you know, there was something very cozy and, and unpretentious about all of it. And the house that there's now, that is up there now is, is, is the opposite. It's very pretentious. Um, anyhow. Um, so how, how far was it? How far yeah, was it from the actual yeah. house, the house where you shot? Not too far. A couple canyons over, as we say in L.A. <laughs> um, it was in Runyon Canyon, um, as opposed to Benedict Canyon, where the real house had once existed. Um, but it was great because of the house that we found. I felt like had the atmosphere, had sort of the internal bones of it with the rafters up in the living room, but it had that very flat sort of sort of claustrophobic vibe to it. You know, it wasn't this big mansion, you know, with the big lofty ceilings and you know that's not the house that 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 existed at the time and and it had the pool right out there and it had an incredible leg that overlook just it was like magic just being up there and i would often stop 
And I think we as a group would stop and think, oh, wow, this is what it would have looked like, you know, not just the night of the murders, but this is the view she would have enjoyed, you know, in her yeah. nights at home, you know, with her husband or with friends around. And it, it, there was something very magical about being up in that part of uh, Los Angeles and seeing the Hollywood sign and the twinkling lights of Los Angeles sort of this panoramic view, um, especially at night where it all sort of it's right right there. And there's there's nothing like yeah. that. Yeah, I think so too, and I think you captured the what I always interpreted as the the feeling of that area. I mean, I just I just drove up to Cielo Drive Saturday night, and there's something it, there's it's oh, wow. very peaceful, it's very peaceful and serene, and at the same time, when you consider the events that took place there, there's this eerie quality to it, an unsettling quality, yeah. um, and I think that came through in, mm-hmm. in your film. Well, unfortunately, the, the that's location production work. That's what Manson did. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't mean to interrupt. Uh, Manson, you know, changed that. I think the Manson murders changed, you know, what was once such a serene, peaceful, idyllic place into a place where you didn't quite feel as safe, into a place where you had to lock your door at night, where you had to put a gate up around your house, where you didn't feel comfortable um, in your own home. And I think that's that's what they sadly accomplished, you know, with, with the yeah. horrible murders. They, they drove fear into the hearts of everyone. And I don't mean just Los Angeles. I think the entire world, you know, felt it. There were such shockwaves yeah. from what had happened. Um, again, I'm no historian or, or uh, you know, necessarily expert on, on that, but I, I wanted to sort of impart just the, the, the tragic nature of the whole thing. Let me ask you, because I'm going to have to let you go. I've been told I have just a couple more minutes, but no, I, okay. one of your one of your future projects uh, is about Nicole Simpson. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- where are you with yeah, that? Is yeah, that we complete? Just, we just finished it. Yes, it's complete. We actually, weirdly, we just finished it yesterday. It's well, like now I finally finished delivered movie as of yesterday. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it kind of came right on the heels of the Sharon Tate project. Um, it was a, it was a, an existing script. It wasn't one that I had written, but it was an interesting adjunct to the story that we know about Nicole Simpson. And without exonerating her real killer or the killer, Ron Goldman, I think the world knows already knows who that was. Um, it 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 gives us a look into a relationship she had with a man that she hired to paint her condo on Bundy drive, a man named Glenn Rogers, who later was discovered to be a serial killer Mm. and Mm. was arrested around the time of the trial of the OJ trial for having committed. I think they, they got him on five murders, but he claims to have killed like up to 70 women. They had dubbed him the Casanova killer and in a very interesting documentary called uh, My Brother, the Serial Killer, his own brother tells the story of how he believed that Glenn Rogers murdered Nicole and, um, or that O.J. put him up to it or uh, conspired with him or collaborated with him. It's a very interesting story. We don't necessarily take the position in the movie that that's the way it went down, but that there was this weird connection or, or strange, you know, um, kind of confluence of um, of meeting of these various people that that they that their lives intersected um, at this time, and yeah. what 
again, taking an alternate look at it, like what would that have been had that been the case if, if Glenn Rogers had really entered this woman's life and um, and if she feared him in some way. But again, it doesn't it doesn't rewrite history. We don't think we know how it all went down, but uh, it just takes a second look at it. Right. You know, it's interesting to me, and, and this will be my last question for you. Um, True crime is all the rage now. Uh, true crime is all the rage nowadays, and and you've just finished two movies about mm-hmm. two of the most infamous true crimes of the past half century. Uh, do you, yeah. do you, having done that, do you have any kind of insight of what 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 lures us, what attracts us to these these mm-hmm. stories and this genre? I, I honestly think it's that notion of it could happen to you. You know, if it happened to these well-known, loved, famous, wealthy people, like this could happen to anyone. And I think that's the heart of, you know, stories like Nicole Brown Simpson, certainly Nicole, uh, excuse me, Sharon Tate. Um, I, I think it's that idea that we're not safe anymore. And I think that we're living in a time where people don't necessarily feel safe or secure um society is going through some major upheaval right now. Uh, we as a culture mm-hmm. are experiencing so much divisiveness. And I think sometimes movies that are made during these tumultuous periods kind of reflect that, you know, and not to get too philosophical on the whole topic, but I do think that because um, you can look through, through the history of, of storytelling or the history of, making films or, or horror films in particular, they, they seem to go in these cycles when, when there's, when there's turmoil in, in, in society, these movies become more um, prevalent. Pretty girl. Pretty, pretty girl. Interesting. This tape. It contains subliminal messages. This person, these these people, they're a threat to my safety and to the safety of my baby. The line's dead. What? Okay, that was Daniel Ferens, the director of The Haunting of Sharon Tate. Did you see that film, Adam? I did not, no. So I don't really have a uh, an opinion on it. As It's just uh, I've been trying to catch up with current stuff, and that one slipped past. So, no, I did not. Yeah. Well... It can stay past you. You won't. You won't lose anything. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, uh, I uh, I understand his thought process for putting it together and what he was trying to do, but I I do find it offensive to the memory of the victims. And uh, you know how we always say, if if real life, uh, if you take artistic license with a real life event, at least have that artistic license be more interesting. Or in the case of a horror movie, more horrifying than what really happened. And uh, 
every single change he makes uh, is neither interesting, more interesting or more horrifying. And I, I, I frankly think it dishonors the surviving family and, and the victims. I, uh, you know, I just, uh, I just didn't like it. And I'm not, a, I mean, I'm not offended, like outraged, like I'm never watching another movie by Daniel Ferens again. I don't do that kind of thing. But I just thought it was bad, bad judgment. Well, that's too bad. It's a, it sounds like a missed opportunity, especially with the 50th anniversary and all that. And uh, you hate to see, you know, with, with an anniversary yeah. like this, just missing an opportunity to do something that that would honor the memory, like you said. It's, it's too bad. Yeah, and this, you know, 50th anniversary and making a horror film. I mean, to his to his credit, he to capitalize on the 50th anniversary. To his credit, he doesn't focus on the Manson family. It's not one of those. Mm-hmm. And I do like the idea of making a movie about Sharon Tate, um, uh, uh, which maybe Tarantino has done. But um, anyway, there it is, Daniel Ferens. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Email us at moviegeeksunited at yahoo.com, whether you agree or don't agree. Yeah. Uh, so the big new release this past weekend was Pet Cemetery. So <laughs> yes. you, you, you saw it, I'm sure, I right? I did. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I saw it as well. This is a rare opportunity for us to talk about a movie we've both seen. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> yeah, I actually got out to the movie. I've seen like ten movies this this past week. Wow, um, you're on top of it. I know. I know. I feel good about myself. So, Pet Cemetery. What are your thoughts on the original? First of all, thirty years past. I generally liked it. Um, I really liked it the first time that I saw it when it originally came out. I, I thought it was a um, just a nice, compact version of the novel. I thought that uh, they did a good job of, you know, uh, taking all the themes and and getting jamming them in there and cutting away the fat. And I don't know. I, I mean, the performance, the lead performance, uh, Dale Midkiff as the dad. Mm-hmm. You know, that was lacking a little bit. I think. But um, you know, you had Fred Gwynn. He's so good in as the neighbor, and uh, you know, there were some truly frightening moments in the movie. Frightening imagery, I thought, with the sister who had the uh, spinal meningitis and all that. That just that I, I'm hor- horrific imagery does more for me than actual than probably any other element in a, in horror as as a whole and uh, that just those images stuck with me and uh you know I just felt like it was it was pretty well done not not perfect uh, looking back on it you know have after all these years have passed but it still holds up and um you know I, I you could do a lot worse so well i mean that that lead performance by him uh really uh put put a quell on the whole thing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, there are moments that I liked, but I thought it was kind of a second-rate adaptation of what I consider Stephen King's scariest book. I mean, I thought that book was genuinely scary. It is. Uh, this this one, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a little more uh, elegantly done, a little more polished. Uh, though some of the transitions aren't as elegant as I would have liked. But uh, uh, transitions between scenes and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, by the most part, it's it's pretty polished. But w- what I appreciated most about it is how uncompromising it is mm-hmm. for a uh, for a big studio horror film. It's uh, 
it it goes there, and I appreciated that. Um, John Lithgow is not um, he play he doesn't play it as colorfully as no. uh, Fred Gwynn does, so he doesn't come across as vivid as Gwynn did. The Indians knew that. They stopped using that burial ground. The ground went sour. Don't think about doing it, Lewis. Place gets holier. The place is evil. Sometimes that is better. Yeah, they knew the power of that place. They felt its pull. They came to believe that those woods belonged to something else. The, the ground was bad. So they moved on. But there is something up there. Something that brings things back. So what happened to your dog, Judd? He came back. Just like Danny B said he would. But he was changed. It was when he went after my mother that my daddy put him down. For the second time. Sometimes dead is better. I think. I think outside of that, uh, I was. I was more impressed with this version than the last. I just. Uh, I, I. I can't. I can't review these from an interpretive point of view uh, because I, I don't take them seriously enough. <laughs> yeah. 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 Agreed. I mean, there's there's not a, there's not a lot to chew on. It's just that, that they execute well what they were in, trying to do. And uh, I thought it w- was a well-executed, very dark uh, horror film. It's not, it's not in the artistic class of something like Hereditary. It doesn't no. have those ambitions. But uh, for, for what it is, I thought it was satisfying. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was a little lukewarm on it myself. I, uh, and, of course, they made a big change, you know, uh, in the last half of the, the last... I guess the last act, which I don't know, we don't want to do spoilers, I don't guess, but, you know, uh, it's out there. Probably everybody knows that's listening to this anyway. <laughs> and I, I don't think that, that change quite worked for me. Um, I don't I don't know. I, I like uh, the way they went with it in the, in the original uh, film adaptation, the first one. I don't know. It just didn't quite, it just didn't quite do it for me. And, uh, and, and before that change occurs in the movie, it's pretty much beat for beat, note for note, reworking of the original film. I, there's not much. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see much difference. Not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, if you haven't seen the first one, you'll certainly enjoy it. But for those of us who have seen the, the one from 89 over and over again, it's kind of like, well, we've been here so many times before, and there's not really... You know, I'm not really seeing anything different or, or new or inventive here. It's just, you know, it, with the exception of the performances, yeah. like you said, the performances have a little more polish. And um, yeah, Jason Jason Clark is a lot better than the. Uh, and actually, I thought both of the both of the parents were very good, and I thought the daughter was a, a good fleshed out performance as well. And I yeah, appreciated the fact that they went with the older daughter. Just from a practical standpoint, if you want to have scenes that address kind of. Uh, coming back from the dead and, and adjusting to that, you can do a lot yeah. more with a character that can speak that isn't a baby, you know? It was, it, you know, it was practical. 
Yeah, it's um I I mean I guess I guess uh, another aspect of it was when the uh the 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 uh the big the big death, you know, scene in in the the character that gets killed, you know, by the semi when they uh, dig the body up. <laughs> you know, there's hardly a scratch on the body. <laughs> I thought, boy, that was some mortician yeah. there doing that job. <laughs> Because <laughs> that body would not have looked that that good. I'm sorry, it would have been a real mess uh, after that event. So that was that was a big suspension of disbelief for me. <laughs> it's like knowing yeah. stuff. Uh, so it does take a little bit of that just for, before war that you've got to suspend your disbelief a little bit about because uh, anybody who's ever who has any yeah. knowledge of what <laughs> what a victim of being run over by yeah, a truck yeah. might look like. <laughs> Well, then again, you know, I mean, you're watching a movie about burying someone and they come back to life. That's true. It's true. You I mean, got it. You, yeah. Suspension of disbelief, yeah, you should already be there. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so uh, on a grade level, what would you give it? Oh, I don't know. I'd probably about a B- minus for me. Uh, me too. You know, me too. It's a... Uh, you know, it's not it's not terrible, and like I said, if if there's any, you know, the the uh, the new generation that's coming up now who may not have seen the original, they're probably gonna like it. I mean, they're probably gonna find it really enjoyable. And if you don't know, if you haven't read the novel and you're just not familiar with the with the story points, you're probably gonna probably gonna dig it. But for those of us who've seen the other one, you know, it's like, eh, <laughs> for me yeah. anyway. So. Well, is there, are, are there other new releases that you've seen? Well, I did see uh, most of Dragged Across Concrete, all but about the last half hour, and so far uh-huh. I'm very impressed with that. <laughs> I've got to say, you are. I am. Yeah, I like it. I really am. I, I mean, now I may, I may be disappointed when I get to the tail end of it, but uh, so no, far, no, I don't think I don't. I don't think you will be. I I watched it, and I was bored to tears. Really? I understand. I understand, okay. like the the notion of the slow burn, but this is yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, this this is like a, for me, it was coma inducing. So you got a two, <laughs> like a two hour and thirty some odd minute movie, and it's not a very remarkable story. First of all, uh, yeah, and and he's and he's not preoccupied like he did in his other two films with with kind of a uh, a, high, a hybrid genre movie. It isn't that kind of thing that he's no. doing, which is fine. Directors should make all kinds of films. Uh, and maybe he, he never intended to build a career on those genre-twisting movies. But, uh, I mean, I, I, I didn't find the characters particularly interesting or the situation that they're in uh, not enough to warrant a two-and-a-half-hour movie. However, the third act... Which it sounds like you're just getting into now. I am, yeah. Is uh, is unique, I think. It, okay. It's a it's a unique standoff situation, and I I liked it. I like I liked the last half hour. I liked the last act. That paid off for me. I totally agree with you uh, on the the overlink. Yeah, it it, it it there is no reason for it to be as long as it is. I I did notice that, uh, you know, a little bit. I did feel it, but. Not to the point where it, where I was being um, distanced from it or anything. I mean, it was. Yeah, I felt like they could have moved it on a little bit, but uh, you know, it wasn't like I said. It wasn't bothering. It wasn't to the point where it was bothersome for me. And uh, I was. In, I thought the, 
know, the performances were good and uh, what I've seen so far and just, um, you know, I, I'm not going to say I think the last one was better, of course, um, but uh, Brawl Oh, yeah, his first, two are, his first two are yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, Bone Tomahawk as well. So yeah. and, and, and frankly, I don't see any uh, reason for this kind of conservative, uh, incendiary, conservative viewpoint. Uh, I, don't, I don't see it as incendiary. Nothing about the movie kind of struck me as offensive or, you know, I guess no. politically incorrect, but I, I don't I don't get all I don't get my panties in a bunch over that kind of stuff like a lot of people do. Yeah, there have been a lot of people who've been a little upset by it. I've been hearing, uh, and you know, I, I don't know. I, I find him to be a, ref- a refreshing voice. Uh, yeah, in, in the, that's out there, and I'm I'm always interested to see what he's going to do next. Uh, he's one of those directors that I just, even if he doesn't quite. You know, hit a home run. I'm always curious about well, what's coming next? What's he gonna do? What's the next one? So, so yeah, yeah. I'm I'm excited by him as a director, but I do feel that when he was working in the the kinds of genres like uh, you know the uh, what he did in Bone Tomahawk when it when it descended into horror at the end, and then what he did with uh, Cell uh, uh, Brawl on Cell Block ninety nine. Where it mm-hmm. went from uh, it went from like a a crime film to a uh, a prison exploitation movie. Yeah, uh, I I enjoyed that, and and the violence seemed to be in keeping with the cheap thrills of those genres. In this one, the violence is uh, there's something that he does to a woman, a character he introduces just so you could feel empathy for her right before he, he offs her. Mm. And I thought that that was um, not not really uh, in good... In, I thought it was in poor taste. Because yeah. there, wasn't, there, there was no reason for it outside of making you feel like shit when she gets her head blown off. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it, ser- it served no narrative purpose. I mean, that, that person did not... It's different when it's something like a Michael Mann film where he's introducing all these secondary characters and they're interesting and they all weave into the story in a meaningful way. They have their own arc. This character isn't like this. She's, she's introduced just so you will, will feel terrible. <laughs> yeah. And it's not, a nece- it's not a necessity to the story. Will you make sure, sure my baby gets this? His name is Jackson. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's uh, and that that does happen. From I've seen other filmmakers do that sort of thing too, and it, it feels falsely manipulative, is what it does. So yeah, it feels yeah. false. You know, if if this were an exploitation film in the vein of Cell Block Ninety Nine, uh, it would be it would be one thing uh, because mm-hmm. it's in keeping with that kind of. But this one, this one wants to play more as a, as a as a gritty uh, uh, over the top cop cop drama thriller kind of thing but but you know you'll you'll like the last the last half hour if you've liked it so far yeah i can't wait to to get it get it done i uh i thought i was gonna have time to finish it today but uh just didn't quite happen <clears throat> time got away so uh yeah, yeah. looking looking forward well to yesterday i attended the sarasota film festival and i saw a couple of documentaries i saw 
uh, Hell Satan, which follows hmm. the Satanic Temple. Uh, and it was it was surprising. The Satanic Temple is kind of spread all over the place uh, outside of the U.S. as well. And what it is, it's not they don't they don't worship Satan. They uh, they just call themselves Satanists because it's uh, provocative. And they and they have to give themselves a name, but Satan is, uh, you know, he's the opposite of of God. I mean, he's the uh, he's the opposer, the opposition. So what mm-hmm. they do is, whenever there's uh, a move to put the Ten Commandments on government property, they move to put their satanic uh, statue right next to it. Um, <laughs> It's it's really it's really a political group more than you know we're going to sacrifice kittens or some shit uh, and it was so it's a it was an interesting eye opening documentary that movie's been picked up by Magnolia and it's scheduled for theatrical release this year so uh, it's it's worth checking out um, and then I watched a documentary made by uh, Montgomery Cliff's nephew called Making Montgomery Cliff. And uh, I liked it. I, I liked it a lot. It wasn't a conventional biographical documentary. It was more about mm-hmm. how how people are misremembered. How uh, one snippet of of information gets out there through a bi- biography or what have you, and mm-hmm. it becomes accepted accepted truth. And in this case, the main thing was uh, Montgomery Clift. Uh, beautiful method actor up there with Brando and Dean and changing the art form. He gets in this really awful car wreck uh, that mangles his face. He's never quite the same, and it's a downhill slide from there. Uh, When, in fact, in truth, after the accident, he made just as many movies as he had before the accident, and he was proudest of his his performances after the accident. Mm -hmm. Um. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, you know do, do you feel like you get to know don't know, but it does dispel misunderstandings about him, and maybe in the end it shows you maybe you don't know there's no way to know people maybe people people are so incredibly complex that it's impossible to completely know them, mm-hmm. uh, because I did feel like I didn't really get to get intimate with Clift in the movie. But at least, at least I understood the latter part of his life a lot better. Yeah, yeah. I had, uh, think I might have heard an interview with that guy, and that's it was on my radar for sure. But uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah, it's a decent movie, and and that performance that he gives in Judgment at Nuremberg, that one scene, oh yeah, where actually people thought that he was it was real. People thought he was really having a breakdown, and. Mm-hmm. You're you're like no fool. That's acting. <laughs> it it shows his script. It shows how he rewrote a lot of stuff. And you said he said he recited his rewrites word for word. Where he's he's skipping words and he's unintelligible at times. He wrote all that out. I mean, it's, it was a very thought out, planned performance that he felt very passionate about. They gave him one of the leads in the film, and he said, "No, uh, there's a boring. I want this one part here." Because he he moves me very much in that he's lost so much, and yet he still struggles to maintain a sense of dignity. That's what moved him about that character. And it's a Mm -hmm. beautiful, beautiful performance he gives in that scene. I would like 
you to judge. I, I want that you tell me, was she feeble-minded? My mother! Was she feeble-minded? Was she? Yeah, that's a, that is, that really is. And like you said, after the accident, too, so... <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great movie. It really is. I did, just did uh, you see Glass? Did you see Glass I did. last year? With that I girl? did. Yeah, I saw that back in January. Yeah. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Came out in January. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, well, it was better than the last one. It was better than Split. Okay. I'll say that. <laughs> I'll just. Uh, I, you saw it. I take it. I I enjoyed it well enough. It's uh, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not over the moon about that kind of thing, but um, I, I enjoyed it enough. I was, I was engaged, and I thought it was good that Bruce Willis is doing something that's not directed to, to VOD. Yeah, true. Uh, kind of, re- kind of reminded, reminded you. Yeah, he used to be in the lead in theatrical releases. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he wasn't relegated to playing the small town sheriff in a VOD movie. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, yeah, it was... And then the uh, mule. Yeah, sorry, you saw ahead. that. I saw that, too, back in December, I guess it was, yeah. I know, dude. I know. I'm so behind. But I, well, I, I don't mean it that way. But you're getting there. I thought, I, I thought the mule was very entertaining. Even, it and, was, and extremely, yes. extremely silly. I thought... Because uh, I was watching it, I was thinking, gosh, what a silly, silly movie this is. As, yeah. and, uh, especially like when he goes to the drug dealer's house and the people guarding the house have like gold-plated machine guns. It's, it's like uh, a, a ch- uh, I guess a child's concept of these these kinds of worlds. But um, yes, it felt it felt a little fake. But uh, and then he's talking about how safe he is and how he never gets pulled over. But for half the movie, he doesn't wear a seatbelt. I'm thinking, isn't that like? The first thing that you would do if you're a safe driver is put on your seat. Yeah. <laughs> True. Now, ha- halfway True. through, he starts to wear his his seatbelt. And I'm like, okay, all right. Because somebody might have said something halfway through the shooting. And he was like, oh, shit, I guess I better start wearing my seatbelt. <laughs> uh, yeah. But there's one thing after another that's that's pretty pretty silly in the movie. But it's 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 a breezy. And there's... I know Bradley Cooper just did it as a favor to Eastwood because Eastwood mm-hmm. gave him a Star Is Born probably, and he and he likes yeah. Eastwood a lot. That's but true. it's kind of a nothing role for him. But even even more than that, he he plays, and it might have been Eastwood's direction. There's a scene where he shares a, a, a diner, a table at a bar at a diner with Eastwood, and they start start up a conversation. And I feel like Bradley Cooper played that scene completely wrong. Uh. Because he's playing it like he's looking at him and he's suspecting him. And yet mm-hmm. the point at the end of the scene is that he didn't suspect him at all. It, it's a very conf- very confusing signals coming from Bradley yeah. Cooper in that, in that scene. It's just odd. And yeah, that's... Does Diane Weist have to be dying of cancer in every movie she does? I mean, it was such a bright lights, <laughs> big city kind of conclusion for her character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is that's that seems like that. She's uh, she's had an inordinate amount of roles that uh, 
where the character was suffering uh, in that yeah. manner. Yeah. Poor absolutely. Thing. Yeah. All right. She, well, that's about it. I I liked Old Man and the Gun. I thought it was I thought it was just I thought it was a nice little modest movie. Uh, yeah. Vice. I wasn't I wasn't too taken by Vice. Oh. Okay. Uh, and High, Highwaymen I thought was really ho hum. Uh, I thought the period detail was great, but the it's just eh, it, it didn't work dramatically. Wow. Well, they were sure plugging the hell out of it when we were in L.A. <laughs> Billboards everywhere. They really were. They really were. <laughs> Netflix, man. Netflix on every street corner in L.A. Exactly, yeah. Netflix and cannabis dispensaries. That's the, <laughs> <laughs> That's the story of L.A. today. Yes, it is. It anyway, is, is okay. A... Good segue, buddy. Look at you. Uh, that's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. All right. So we just Adam and I just spent like eight days together. Yeah. Um, in in you know our favorite city, L.A. Yes. Uh, yes indeed. So and and most of our trip was re- revolved around visiting movie locations, seeing what they look like today. Um, and if you go on our Facebook page at Movie Geeks United, you could see a gallery of some of those spots from. Poltergeist to Back to the Future to you know what have you, and a lot of pictures I don't have yet, but we'll post those in, in the near future. Uh, so what was what was the highlight for you? What do you think about most? Oh wow, well it's uh, you know it it was fascinating to actually stand in the spot where a lot of those places were a lot of those movies were shot. That that was that does give you a surreal feeling. You know, to know, and 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 then you know, when you're standing there, you can just kind of visualize where the crew might have been standing when they were shooting it, or you know, you you think about those kind of things, or how did they, how was the camera positioned, what were they, you know, what, you know, what was going on the day when they stood here and shot this, and you know, so that that was it kind of gives you, a, like I said, a, a a surreal feeling, you know, and then we did a little crime you know um, Tinseltown crime type stuff you know celebrity deaths and that's that's kind of that kind of humanizes things in a way you know when you read about it in the headlines like for instance the, the Marvin Gaye house you know where he was shot and killed you, you you look at it and it's just a house you know <laughs> but you think well Marvin Gaye was shot and killed up there uh, you know by his dad and um yeah, big so, pretty you know, house in a in in a not so pretty area. Yeah, but uh, I mean the house itself is pretty impressive from the glimpse that I got of it driving by it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and the same with uh, the Dorothy Stratton house where Dorothy Stratton was, or apartment or whatever it is, where she was killed. Uh, Just a know, regular quiet little neighborhood. I mean, yeah. I mean her her apart her apartment is. I mean that ha- that little house is. A little creepy, but it feels almost like it doesn't belong in that neighborhood. Like, I know it's a you could tell, freeway. Yeah, and you can also tell something horrible happened in that house. Like, <laughs> if you didn't know yeah. anything about the tragedy, you're looking at it thinking, "I can picture something freaky going on <laughs> in that house," compared to the rest yeah. of the neighborhood. But uh, yeah, that was all uh, just extremely interesting to because, like I said, it um, kind of brings it down to. Uh, that stuff that you know it seems like it's uh, on another planet and then when you see it in person it kind of bring it kind of brings it down to 
um, you know, makes it a little smaller, so to speak. I don't know. I'm I'm fumpering for words here, but yeah, no, you're right. Uh, you're right. And yeah. we went to. Uh, I tell you what, because the uh, two other friends of mine went with us on the trip, and including my my best friend Rick, and the um, this car lot that they Hitchcock shot the scene from Psycho, where Marion buys another car as the cops watching her. That place is still standing, and it's still a car lot. And, uh, you know, we were so in awe, and we were taking pictures from every angle, and Rick just wanted to touch the wall. He was like, I want to touch something <laughs> that, Hitch- that Hitchcock was around. And that car lot is right down the street from Universal Studios. So yeah. it, I guess it would have been pretty easy for him to pinpoint that as a place where he wanted to shoot. But it was, other than the roadside, uh, where the cop pulls her over, it's the... It's probably the only practical location that in in Psycho. Yeah, it is because a lot of that's on the back lot, and you know all that stuff. And we only went to one location that no longer stands that I remember, and that's uh, the Bowfinger House. That wasn't mm-hmm. there anymore. In terms of movie locations, and then. And then we visited the site of the Krista Helm murder <clears throat> because that's a particular obsession of mine, as any listener of our Tinseltown Tragedies series knows. And that house is demolished as well. But outside of that, every place we went to is still still standing and is recognizable. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty fantastic when you think about it. I mean, for instance, uh, like the Whatever Happened to Baby Jane house. I mean, that movie was shot in 61, 62, and I mean, we're talking almost 60 years, but it's virtually unchanged. You know, it's pretty yeah. when you think about stuff like that. So there's a lot of history in that area. I mean, you know, some of it, unfortunately, is going away, but there's still a lot of history to embrace. Uh, the other one was the... Uh, the Double Indemnity House, which is <laughs> well well over seventy years old at this point, mm. um, so and way it, way up there in the hills, man. Jeez, yeah. it felt like it took it felt like it took twenty minutes of just driving driving down a slope to get out of there. Yeah, I mean it's way up there, but the views are just like majestic from up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you talk about majestic views. I mean, when you, we went to see Manny's house from Scarface. Uh, oh, yeah. The view that you see down the street there is just breathtaking. Uh, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, because most of Scarface is shot in L.A., Yeah. So, um, uh, which some people might not realize. Even the freeway stuff is shot in L.A. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and I think people will be surprised that when you go to locations like um like the houses from Halloween uh the houses at the conclusion of Halloween where Jamie Lee Curtis is babysitting and her friend that gets killed um right across the street those are those are just like you would turn down any street uh residential street and they're right there i don't quite mm-hmm. know what we were expecting but we're expecting I, I, I'm not sure that some, some of these movie locations must be isolated or something, but no, it's just off of regular old street off Sunset Boulevard and you turn and all of a sudden you're looking at the Jamie Lee Curtis house from Halloween or you're looking at Nancy's house from Nightmare on Elm Street. 
Uh, it's pretty incredible. And people live there and we got the sense that from the people that we saw outside of those, these houses, that they're, they're well used to, uh, people coming by and taking photos. Some of them actually posed for us. (laughs) Yeah, they sure did. Yeah. And then we, uh, of course ran into some people who were on a death tour. Uh, that was kind of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, as we were. Fellow yep. uh, we, death hags. That's right. Yes. And then we had, uh, you know, we, we had we had lunch with our buddy uh, Eddie Deason, our former guest. Uh, we met up with uh, Scott Michaels, another former guest. Uh, we met up with our buddy uh, Tony Macklin, <laughs> who comes on yeah. contributor. We So we got to see him. and, and so uh, We went to a screening that was attended by... Harold Becker and Al Pacino. Yes. Uh, we went to Vegas and saw Barry Manilow. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of incredible. Like, <laughs> yeah. the amount of stuff we we packed it a week. We saw. We went to a, a Paley Center television conference uh, <clears throat> where they were talking up Twilight Zone, and uh, Jordan Peele and his whole cast for the new Twilight Zone were on stage. Uh, like one thing after another. We 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 did. We did, and we saw quite a lot. Yes, we did. We uh, it was quite a quite a productive trip, I would say. We uh, we we. My favorite we, house. My favorite house. I think I love the I love the look of the Poltergeist Two house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love the look of the uh, the Willard house. Oh, I was gonna say that's that's mine probably. Yeah. Yeah, that was a beautiful home. The original oh, it Willard. Sure was. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if they have a rat problem there, but uh, <laughs> could you imagine being like the exterminator that comes to that house? <laughs> yeah, but it's very well maintained considering that movie is almost fifty years old. Uh, yeah, very much. It it looks uh, you wouldn't know it's that old but, uh, unless you we knew went it. And saw. Yeah, we went and saw. Um, the, the apartment where Orson Welles died. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's there were so many hundreds of stops that we made. And that's the thing about this trip. Every single other trip I've made in L.A. has been a lot more lazadaisical. <laughs> so you felt like you were in no rush to do anything necessarily, and you kind of absorbed the environment a bit more. And mm-hmm. this one was different because we had things scheduled to the minute. Because we had stops that we had to fill on each day, and w- we did it. I mean, we we rode hard to 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 go to all these locations, which I'm I'm thankful of. I, I'm thankful that I'm able to say that I've been to all these different locations. At the same time, it made the vacation a little bit of a blur. Like at the end <laughs> of it, I'm thinking I'm thinking, did we really do that? Like we went to Musso and Frank's, a hundred year old restaurant that Charlie Chaplin and Bogart and and Tons of Hollywood legends have frequented over the years. Um, it's uh, pretty upscale, and it's it's a big sequence in Tarantino's upcoming movie. He shot a whole mm-hmm. week in there. Uh, we, yeah. and, and we went to the El Coyote. I'm telling you, yeah. if any memory lasts more than just, you know, I think that my main memory will just be spending time with you guys and enjoying the camaraderie between the four of us, but Outside of that, I think the El Coyote is the 
is the sensational that's lingering for me. Like, God, I oh, wish yeah. I could go to the El Coyote tonight because that was great Mexican food. And that, it of sure course, was. is the site of Sharon Tate's last meal, which mm-hmm. is why we went there. And the second night we went there, we went from El Coyote to Cielo Drive. So we took we took the drive Sharon Tate took with her friends the night that they were killed after leaving the restaurant. And that was the one thing that creeped me out. And uh, I know my friend Rick didn't understand it because <clears throat> you know I I don't I don't get creeped out by all these death locations I visit. But Cielo Drive is different because Cielo Drive is like the stuff of nightmares since I was a kid. I mean, the terrible stuff that, you know, that was the story of the boogeyman, you know, for all my life I've lived with that story. Uh, Mm -hmm. So to drive up that narrow path up the hill to the Cielo Drive gate where that house once stood, it's uh, it's pretty haunting. And again, that, that Cielo Drive, the real Cielo Drive will be in Tarantino's movie as well. Yeah. Yeah, it does give you a, a very odd feeling, that's for sure, especially knowing that's the exact same path they took. It really does. But, um, yeah, mm. but the food is great at El Coyote. It's not, uh wasn't just about going there for that reason. The food is delicious. Right. Yeah, we went two nights in a row because we liked it so much, yeah. Yeah, it was just awesome. Yeah, I do miss that. Yeah, the burritos were about as big as your forearm. Uh, they were amazing. Mm. It was just God, huge. We drove we we drove by the uh, oh, so many places. The, the the church where the fog was shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, drove by all the Halloween locations. Even drove by the Step Brothers' house. Yes. From you know the movie Step Brothers, and they were shooting something else there. There was a big film <laughs> they crew were. there. And so we yeah. pulled up, and and they, they had like windows in the house blacked out and stuff. They were it was so pretty impressive production going mm. on there. Whatever it was, we didn't find out. But we slowed down, and there was film crew on the other end of our car, on the other side of the road. And but we slowed down. We took photos anyway of the house. Then we turn around, and the film crew is taking photos of us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, kind of shared a laugh about that. Yeah. Yeah. And we did eat at Pat and Lorraine's too. That was uh, right, right. Reservoir Dogs, uh, the little uh, diner at the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. We sat at the exact table, and we had a photo taken of us to match the opening frame of that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, again, delicious food, um, just mm-hmm. terrific. As it, uh, it was a huge omelet I had. And it was took up half the plate, and then they were, it was served with refried beans, which you normally don't get with uh, breakfast food. But it was fine with yeah. me because I thought it was great. <laughs> it was great. And even, yeah. you know, our first day there before you arrived, we were hungry. So we stopped at you know, where I've been before, which is the Denny's on Sunset and Gower. Mm-hmm. And uh, so three of us were eating at Denny's, and, you know, we ate at Denny's a lot this trip. I guess just because it's convenient, but uh, but then I get home. (laughs) Yeah, I get home and I'm reading an interview with Mary Lambert because all this 30th anniversary Pet Cemetery stuff is happening, Mm -hmm. and Mary Lambert's talking about how she and Stephen King would meet multiple times and discuss their plans for the movie, 
at that exact Denny's on Sunset and Tower. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that was Stephen King's favorite place to eat in L.A. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> I, could, uh, I could see that. I, I could see that. Yeah. That sounds like something he would enjoy. Yeah, hey, it's good. I don't know if uh, I don't know if it's just because we were out there, but but the, the food at the Denny's out there was re- really good. All the all the times we ate there. So, yeah, was, try no to complaint. eat at the restaurant from Boogie Nights. It's a place called Dupars, where mm-hmm. uh, Burt Reynolds is talking to Mark Wahlberg and pitching him on starting a career in porn. And so we went to a Dupars, but uh, it was the wrong one. So, And they have multiple locations in the Los Angeles area. And the one location where Boogie Nights was shot, that location of Dupars has been closed. So yeah, no luck there. Yeah. And our favorite store there is Larry Edmonds, which again is, will be featured in Tarantino's movie. It, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a Hollywood book and movie poster shop. Just if you collect scripts or books on movies or movie posters or anything like that, it's just a dream. Uh, we went there a couple of times. Yeah, we did. I think all of us bought something. Mm-hmm. I, I know I did. I wound up getting three books, and um, I think everybody else got um, at least one, maybe two. So, yeah, we all we gave them a little business. <laughs> we walked downtown at night. And uh, were s- struck by the fear of getting raped. Uh, it was uh, <laughs> a little dicey in some parts of downtown walking at night. Yeah. But we we were in search of, uh, in particular, this bar because Rick is a big X Files fan, and there's a big scene in the movie, the first movie that they shot in this bar. And so we found the bar, and the which is like an Irish pub kind of place in the exact spot where David Duchovny sat so Rick could sit there and order a drink and then the woman said yeah that was a long time ago and she said just a year or so ago they shot a scene from Twin Peaks The Return here at this bar with uh, with the girl uh, I guess meaning Cheryl Lee and, uh, and the agent uh, Dale Cooper mm-hmm. and so we're you know, it's the same exact bar. And then she said, and then in the very back, they did a pickup shot for Titanic where the captain decides to go down with a ship. They, they were missing a shot and we have a place back there that looks like it could be a library. So they just shot that little place in the bar in the back for Titanic. And they're like, wow, you never know. Like Hollywood illusion. <laughs> I know. I forgot that story. Actually, <laughs> we saw so much that one slipped past me. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Pretty amazing. It really was. It really was. And I uh I'm so grateful for you allowing me to be a part of it. It's uh fantastic. No, well, I was a joy having you there. It's a joy spending time with you. Yeah, well I <coughs> I know I had to go into withdrawal. I spent so much time with you guys and then I uh I was missing you guys once we uh <laughs> Once we went our separate ways, because we had yeah. bonded so well, and <laughs> yeah, we did. Yeah, we had to took a while to get readjusted, but oh, yeah. the house that the house that we were in, like the Hollywood side, was like we were way, way up in the hills, <clears throat> and he was pointing out the people that lived in the neighborhood. I mean, Bill Pullman was lives right across from where we mm-hmm. were staying. Uh, like a ton of people live up there. Um, 
but uh, you turn to the left, and there's the Hollywood sign. Like you're looking right at it; it's right up there. Yeah, almost on almost on eye level. And then you look to your right, and there's downtown, all all gleaming like a sea of lights. It's it's kind of astounding. Yeah. Then it's back to reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantasy doesn't last, uh, but so long. So it's. <laughs> yeah. Finally. And as much as I love LA, it would be it would, it would be terrible living there if you're poor. Like yeah. Oh you, yeah. yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. That, we saw caught an inkling of that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. And you can't be skittish about driving either, because that's a car city, and people are maniacs. Oh yeah, driving there. You sure do. You, you can't be timid. No. You got to get right in there. Yeah, and you uh, you don't uh, you don't even bother to signal. You just make your moves basically <laughs> when you're one. Yeah. To... <laughs> you just we saw, do it. We saw the uh, the George Reeves house. Yep. That was. Uh, Nice. Um, and then we... Uh, Laurel Canyon stuff, we, too. Oh, Laurel Canyon stuff. The Jim Morrison house uh, where he wrote Love Street and the, and the Canyon store. I was watching Wonderland just the other day, and they talk about, okay, we're, do, we're, not, we're not doing any drugs. We're not selling any drugs out of the house. If we need to sell drugs, we do it at the Canyon store. I was like, wow. We're right there. Uh, the Canyon... The Canyon Store is a mile from Wonder, the Wonderland House, which we saw. Yeah, we drove by there. That's right. Uh, yeah, we drove by the. We uh, Rick got scared at the Nicole Simpson condo because we drove to the <laughs> back where OJ walked in from, and he was like, "We need to leave. We need to leave right now." Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so funny. Anyway, yeah, stories. Yeah, and Eddie yeah. Deason was great. He he gave us like an hour, hour and a half of his time. We did a little impromptu interview at the table. We went to Pink's together, which is a famous hot dog stand there that everyone's eaten at. Orson Welles most infamously ate a bunch of dogs mm-hmm. there at one sitting. Uh, <laughs> and not hot dogs, a- a- actual dogs he ate, no. <laughs> We audio recorded some of it. We videotaped some of it, and we'll make that available on our Facebook page with the season. <laughs> yeah, he had a lot of good stories. He kept us laughing the whole time. Anyway, I'm in an audition. It's a commercial audition years ago. I was just goofing around, and I had a harmonica. For some reason, I had a harmonica, and I started thinking, I'm playing between things. You know, you wait in the room, and all I'm playing. This guy comes in, and he goes, do you play that? I go, no, it's just a harmonica. I found it, and, you know, I'm just goofing around, and I don't play <laughs> Come here, can you come in? He takes me to this empty room with the camera and all. It's this young director. He goes, okay, I want you to play the harmonica. He goes, well, just walk across the room. Don't say anything. So I, <laughs> I walk across the room. He goes, okay, cut. He goes, don't walk so funny. I go, I'm sorry, sir. I have I have scoliosis. I walk crooked. When I walk, I walk crooked. And that's real. He goes, well, don't walk that funny. <laughs> he goes, now let's try another take. He goes, walk across the room. So I walk across the way I walk. He goes, he goes can't you not walk funny? He goes, just walk straight. I go, that's the way I walk. I have scoliosis. I'm sorry. I walk crooked. All right, we're going to try it one more time. Now, play the harmonica. 
walk a little bit across the room. So I walk, I go, okay, you walk, don't funny, you walk funny. I can't do it if you walk funny. But I'm sorry, sir, but that's how I walk. So I left. That was Oliver Stone. It was Oliver, he was directing his first film called The Hand. Okay. Yep. It was about a yep. deaf mute. Yeah. And he wanted me to play the deaf mute, but he didn't want me. Now I, and then looking back, I go, why couldn't you walk with scoliosis? I wouldn't have wound to hurt the role, but for some reason he did want me to walk that way. But that was Oliver Stone trying to cast me in a movie. True story. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. great. <laughs> And ironically, he uh, it was the day before uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand was released by the Criterion Collection. So we were discussing mm-hmm. that. <laughs> His, yeah. Yeah, so we had... Unfortunately, he's not in the extras on there because he was making the transition, moving back out to L.A. He had left for a while and he was coming back out there and he was in transition. They couldn't... Uh, nail him down for some extras to participate in the extras, so he's not on there, unfortunately. But mm. sadly, but yeah. All right. And and we learned Spielberg's not funny. <laughs> so he tells us. Yeah, that was good info. That was good info. I had I had no idea he, he didn't have a comic mind. No, we found out that uh, between. If he had to choose between working with Zemeckis and Spielberg, that he's going to go with Zemeckis because Zemeckis is funny. He has a sense of humor, and Spielberg just wants to talk about movie history in between setups. He he doesn't like to clown around or joke, so we found that out. Mm. Uh, other death sites, we went to uh, Rebecca Schaefer, Dominic yes. Dunn. Yeah, I was going to mention uh, that one. That was... Bugsy Siegel, which is where they shot the movie Bugsy too at the Real mm-hmm. House. Uh, yeah. Elizabeth Short. Yeah. Uh, a non-death site. We saw Larry Sellers' house from The Big Lebowski, and the <laughs> dude's apartment. Yes, we did. And, uh, and the diner house. where they where they cut off a toe. I can get you toe by six thirty. Uh, yep. That <clears> too. Oh, the poltergeist. Motel. We made a special trip there, thirty thirty miles outside the city. Yeah, uh, to see the Poltergeist Motel, and we took a photo. The mm-hmm. exact spot where they they check into the motel at the very end of Poltergeist. The Back to the Future Mall. We found the yep. exact spots where that was shot. The Phantasm Gate uh, for the cemetery, Morningside Cemetery or Mortuary or whatever. That's still yeah. standing. We went by the that. only surviving location of Phantasm. We found out. So, yeah, good times. So you want to do Blu-rays? Yeah, let's let's run through these real quick. We got a okay a slate of titles from March, and I'll go ahead and make that transition. We were just talking about I want to hold your hand, so we'll use that as our transition piece. And uh, I want to hold your hand was released uh, two weeks ago on Blu-ray by the Criterion Collection. That's the uh, the film debut of director Robert Zemeckis, who, of course, we all know who he is. Anybody who's listening, I don't have to explain that. Um, this is pretty uh, exciting news because um, I want to hold your hand as you know holds a special place in a lot of our hearts. But uh, to have it given the criterion tre- been given the criterion treatment is is pretty exciting, and they've done a good job. Uh, they really have. There is uh, a new 4K digital restoration approved by Robert Zemeckis and co-writer Bob Gale. Uh, There's a new 45-minute conversation between Zemeckis, Gale, and Steven Spielberg. 
Um, there's a new inter- interview with actors uh, Nancy Allen and Mark McClure. And the 2004 commentary from the original DVD release has been ported over. And as a, a further bonus, this is really exciting, I think, uh, the two USC student films of Robert Zemeckis, The Lift from 1972 and A Field of Honor from 1973. So um, nice, uh, nice job they've done with I Want to Hold Your Hand, I think. So if you're a fan of that movie... Just wanted to make sure got the the word out on that one. Um, moving along uh, to some of the Arrow releases, they put out a collection. Uh, well, first of all, I'll I'll, um, I'll preface this and say that Scream Factory or Shout Factory rather has issued all of the Sonny Chiba Street Fighter films, and uh, all of them are in a nice collection here. Uh, one of the Shout Select editions. And new 2K, 2K scans of all the um, Street Fighter films. It, 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 most people remember that um, these are the movies that uh, Christian Slater is watching in the theater at the beginning of True Romance, the uh, Street Fighter films. And they've notoriously been in horrible quality. A lot of them are in public domain, but they've somehow managed to uh, get the actual uh, the best available prints, and they've transferred, it and they really look good. Uh, new 2K scans of each film, uh, new interviews with Sonny Chiba, and new interviews with uh, filmmaker Jack Shoulder, who was involved with the American versions of, of these, and the trailers and still galleries and all that stuff. So, uh, And I was using that as a, as a segue to the Arrow release of the sis- Sister Street Fighter collection. Not to be outdone, they've released all of the... Uh, Sisters Street Fighter films. <laughs> there are there are three of those, and um, they have uh, new extras with those as well. I think there are uh, quite a few. Um, there's uh, interviews, still galleries, trailers, and alternate cuts of the film. And Sonny Chiba was involved with uh, a couple of these as well too. So uh, this. You have the Street Fighter collection and the Sister Street Fighter collection, um, both being issued in March. And um, two other Arrow releases would be the Phantom Lady from 1944. And that one stars, um, it's directed by Robert Schildmack. It's one of those North thrillers from that time. And it's about a secretary putting her life on the line to prove her boss's innocence. Um, It was a a universal release, one of those, uh, like I said, during the classic noir period, and the Alec Guinness film, The Prisoner, where he stars as a cardinal arrested for treason and locked in a battle of wills with his interrogator from 1955, and this has a featurette and a commentary. So uh, those are a couple of Arrow video releases that uh, came out during the month of March. And and speaking of the Shout Select titles, uh, they have done a Shout Select edition of California with a K, the uh, Brad Pitt, Juliette Lewis uh, featuring a new interview with director Dominic Cena and uh, theatrical mm. cut for the first time on Blu-ray. Uh, previously, only the unrated version has been available, but uh, um, now they now you have both, uh, and I think it holds up. I think it holds up pretty well, actually. Um, kind of funny the tone of this film, I think, because it's almost comical at the beginning, and then it turns deadly serious. <laughs> Um, for me, anyway, I laughed a lot during the first half of it. Some of the uh, Brad Pitt, uh, the business he brings to that part. Stanky bitch. Shit. 
couple of Kino releases here. We have Mad Dog and Glory, <laughs> Robert De Niro and Uma Thurman and Bill Murray, directed by John yeah. Naughton. Um, I never saw there are people this, that, actually. People that love that movie. Yeah. Scorsese was a producer, of course. Uh, I don't know if he was if it's something he was originally slated to direct and just couldn't do it, yes. or I don't know. But uh, but he was a producer, and I like I said, it's a blind spot. I didn't see it when it came out, and I and as the years have rolled on, I still haven't. But um, anyway, um, I know this next one's it's a an oddball. It's an oddball movie, and it uh, is. the thing that makes it stand out, at least in the press surrounding it, was the fact that. Uh, Bill Murray was playing a gangster mobster in it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and De Niro uh, wasn't playing the mobster. De Niro was playing the, <laughs> the boring, lovelorn guy. Okay, what about me? Huh? What if I get horny? Well, another Kino release is, uh, and I know this is a favorite of yours, uh, The Doctor with William Hurt. Oh, yeah. And directed by Randa Haynes, who contributes a commentary on this edition. As a uh, an audio commentary, uh, I'm a fan of this film as well. Uh, very very moving film. It still holds up. I saw it not too long ago. Um, uh, I haven't. I didn't get the new edition, newest edition, but Mill Creek put it out a couple of years ago, and I picked that one up. And uh, it's mm. uh, just such a very well made movie. Uh, just I don't know. It's one of my favorites yeah, from that period. Be- beautiful movie and a uh, mm-hmm. great hurt performance. Um. Yeah, I, I'd like to pick that up because I'd like to hear that commentary. Yeah, uh, I, I, I bet that. it's good. I, yeah, did, it's, I uh, did catch up with Randa Haynes. I did send her an email years ago because I wanted her on the show, and she's in France. She lives in France or something. She's kind of off the mm. grid. Wow, that'd be great if you could get her on because she did so many good movies there for a, a period. You know, yeah, until she. Kind of felt like you said, fell off the grid. It's it's sad. She was a, one of those great female directors that I, whose work I admired, and uh, yeah, it's, it's sad. But uh, yeah, that's um, uh, it's, it's like I said, still holds up. Still, still a beautifully made movie, and uh, you know, uh, and another Kino release is uh, the 1993 film Untamed Heart, which I also uh-huh. caught up with again, and. Um, Boy, I'll tell you. Um, yeah, I remember you know, liking this movie when it came out and thinking it was you know, eh, pretty good. You know, uh, but a lot of these movies don't hold up, and I went into it with a little trepidation, thinking I'm not sure if this is going to hold up. And boy, I, I'll tell you, I was incredibly moved by this movie. It still uh, kind of packs a little, well, for me anyway, packed a little bit of an, an emotional wallop. Uh, and um, I don't know, <laughs> it's. Uh, it's 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 uh it just I, I think it's just a well done movie uh, directed by Tony Bill mm. and um you know it's uh Marissa Tomei post my cousin Vinny I think it might have been the first film that she uh, I think she might have been shooting that movie around the time she won the Oscar but uh, and Christian Slater of course Rosie Perez. And, uh, and Christian you know, Slater has a heart. Uh, Christian Slater has a heart defect or something in it. Yeah, yeah. He he was uh, grew up in an orphanage. His parents died, and he was told that he uh, the 
the the women who ran the orphanage told him that he had a baboon's heart and he was special when he was a kid and he's he believed it you know when he was a child but he really they were just telling him that to cover up the fact that he really did have a heart defect that that might not allow him to live to be a, an old man and uh and then it flashes forward to you know he's working as in the di- in a diner as a as a bus boy but he's you know he's the uh, the well read uh, you know kind of artistically mm-hmm. inclined guy and he saves her life one night when she's walking home and uh, and they eventually uh, fall in love it you know doesn't happen right off the bat but it's uh, just a beautifully beautifully made uh, movie I think and uh, I don't know and it checks all the boxes for the for the teenage girl audience yeah it really does yeah, yeah. <laughs> true. Or, or the you know, in this case, the Adam Long audience. Uh, yeah, well, I guess so. I guess so. Well, it was embarrassing because you know, so few movies. I'm I'm kind of hardened by so many things I've seen over the years, and I just it takes a lot to get to me. And uh, you know, when I got to the movie, I was very, uh, very moved, and I said, well, I guess this movie did something right because it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it made me feel, and it, those are the kind of movies I like. I, I, I like to to have a, a movie like that that makes you feel alive again, when you feel kind of uh-huh. you just kind of wow. go through your days, and you you know you go through the days, and you don't really, I don't know, you don't feel like you're emotionally connected sometimes, and you see something, and it just it, it reminds you, it gives you that feeling, you know, that you're. Uh, that you that you are human, and uh, so anyway, yeah, that, I I, I, under, I understand. That's just surprising that it comes from untamed heart. I know. What, what do you what, do you what do you think of Bed of Roses? <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. It was fine, but it was it was. I don't remember liking it as well as I did this movie. And I was totally prepared that this movie was not going to hold up because a lot of those movies that I saw at that period in my life, they just don't. Uh, I'm just yeah. going to be honest, but. Anyway, this one did. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I was in. I don't know. Maybe it's. It was just the right moment when I saw it. But I just really enjoyed. And it has a has a commentary by Tony Bill, by the way, for anybody who's interested. Uh, but anyway, Kino release uh, as is Tony Bill. Is he is he still living or is he dead? He is. Yeah. He's still living. Yeah, he, so I didn't. So that's not an old commentary. Huh. No, uh, I think it's a new one. Yeah, because I don't believe there's a commentary on the uh, the previous DVD release, but uh, but but maybe it's ported over. I'm not sure, but he's still around. Yeah, he is. Hmm. Um, but we were talking about the Doctor earlier. I want to make this point too. That is another one of those touchstone movies that uh, we talk about right. the kind of adult movies that Disney used to make. That's uh, that's another glaring example of the kind of <laughs> in the days pre Marvel, <laughs> something they wouldn't touch. With a ten foot yeah. pole now, um, so I like. Yeah, that's something. Pole. That's something you. That's something you'd see on cable now. Yeah, exactly. But I like to remind people there was a time when Disney made these kind of movies and they were in wide release in theaters, and it hasn't been that long ago, really. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> but um, anyway, duets. Is another Kino release, and I think that one also might be a Disney. That's the that's the one directed by Bruce Paltrow and starring Gwyneth Paltrow, of course, and Huey Lewis, and it's a road trip comedy about uh, these characters who were uh, karaoke singers or whatever. And I never saw it, but I remember it kind of got middling reviews. But anyway, 
Um, and then you yeah, have you know what's uh, going another- on right now. Every every year, where I live in Lakeland, Florida, the big deal every year is what they call the Sun and Fun Fly-in, where all these <laughs> aviation nuts converge here. Uh, and the bad news, if you're not an aviation nut, is uh, you got to live with the sounds of planes flying overhead for the entire week. So I've got <laughs> outside right now. I've, I've got the Blue Angels like flying pretty damn low <laughs> above my house. <laughs> so if anyone hears that in the background, that's what it is. Oh my goodness! I think there's a song called "Angels Never Fly This Low," so I guess they do mm-hmm. in your case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there the, the, several years there have been crashes, like that the you know lethal qu- crashes. Yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah, that has happened. So, well, another one of these Kino releases is, uh, and I think this is one of those Hollywood pictures, another subsidiary of Disney, Before and After, with Liam Neeson and Meryl Streep. Yeah, well, Sir Barbie Schroeder, right? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, yeah, that's another Adult one of those. Movie. Yeah, <laughs> that was in my the heyday of my uh, projectionist days when I was a projectionist. So I remember us. Yeah, I think the daughter's kidnapped or something. It's it's kind of like a, if I remember correctly, it's kind of like an in the bedroom kind of plot. I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. It's been so long. Of course, in in the bedroom is far superior. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's see here. Uh, so we're going to get into, we're up to March 12th now, and we're going to get into a couple of, uh, we got a Scream Factory re- release, The Craft. Another one from that same mm. year, 96. <laughs> it's the one about the, the teenage witches with uh, Nev Campbell and Feruza Balk. Feruza Balk, yeah. Feruza Balk, whatever happened to Feruza Balk? That's a good question. I don't know. Tune in to the next Should... episode of Movie Geeks United. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't participate in any of the extras on the craft, but uh, this does have uh, this. I know there's a cult following for the craft. There are a lot of people who 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 like this movie. I always, I never was crazy about it, and I rewatched it, and I'm still not crazy about it. It just doesn't starts out kind of well, but it, it it just doesn't really make it to the finish line intact. Yeah, it's an, it's another movie that a lot of teenage girls remember fondly from their youth. Yeah. Uh would be interesting. For, that is an interesting question, though, what happened to Feruza Balk. Maybe she uh, maybe she just left the the business altogether, but there, she she epitomized a kind of 90s goth She girl. did. That's right. And a lot of movies that she was in. So, And, of course, you age out of that. And and once you age out of that, what what's your commodity, really? Uh Maybe she was unable to kind of reinvent her image or something. I, I don't know. I'm speculating, mm-hmm. but it's a good point. That's a good point because it does happen. But yeah, this um, this this new special edition has uh, new interviews with uh, Andrew Fleming, the writer, co writer, director, of course, and uh, and you've got uh, huh. commentary by Fleming and uh, you know featurettes and deleted scenes and all that. So anyway, yeah, for fans of the craft, uh, there you go. Um, and then we have um, the Ali Sheedy horror film, uh, Man's Best Friend. <laughs> oh, gosh. 
1993, this is the one about mutated, genetically mutated dogs running amok. Um, wow. I do, I do remember seeing this in the theater, and it was not good. <laughs> so all of these, all of these touchstone things, who, who, who has the rights to them? Who's releasing them? Oh, now the touchstones are Kino. This one actually is a New Line Cinema release, uh, Man's Best Friend, okay. which it's uh, and uh, Screen Factory has the New Line Cinema stuff. But yeah, the Kino stuff, Kino has got all the touchstones, so they're they're putting those out. In fact, they're getting ready to put out uh, in two months. They're putting out uh, Oliver Stone's Nixon, which has been previously released, but they're uh, they're going to be putting it out with the the original theatrical cut, which has never been issued on um, really. Yeah, it's always been the director's cut on Blu-ray. So, uh, yeah, but yeah, they're they're doing well, that's all good. that. I mean, if you if you've got the Touchstone Library, then you've got a lot of damn movies. Yeah, I mean, you've got a lot of a lot of damn uh, mediocre movies, but uh, you've got you know one good cop, a stranger among us, uh, Whisper in the Dark. You got all that stuff. Yeah, and you have its Pat. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> they actually put that out. Yeah. So, uh, well, um, going back to 1987 for this next one. This is a Shout Select, one of the Shout Factory special editions. It's um, someone to watch over me from Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott, director, of course. Yeah. I like this movie. I like it. I do. Um, I do too. I really like. I really, uh, and it it has a. Uh, the the central relationship between Bracco and Tom Berenger feels authentic, and uh, I think the strength of the movie is is the authenticity of that relationship, and then the contrast between the class divide between he and Mimi Rogers, those two worlds, yes. much more so than the crime, it's the investigation itself. Oh yeah, that other stuff, that other peripheral stuff, gives life to the movie. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's an interesting dynamic, like you said, and uh, it's well directed. And um, I don't I don't know. I, I don't think. Um, I mean, Mimi Rogers was really never better. Uh, she's really good in it, I think. And uh, I don't know. It's there's a lot to enjoy about it. And it's a uh, he likes you know, he likes fog or smog or whatever you want to call it. Oh yeah, he likes, <laughs> yeah. He really lays that on. I was watching Eight Millimeter earlier today, the Joel Schumacher film. Yeah, and he likes his his fog so much that. You could even you could see the smoke bomb on the ground. You could actually see where they set the smoke bomb <laughs> down. Like it was so it was so obvious. It wasn't even trying to trying to disguise it as as a natural occurrence. It was somebody just pulled a pin on something and walked away. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. Oh wow! Everybody, clear the decks. Here comes the fog. Yeah, uh, this thing runs out, and in sixty seconds, we got to get the shot off. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we'll get into a couple of the Warner Archive titles. Uh, we have uh, first off, this is an odd choice for a Blu-ray Blu-ray release, but they put it out anyway. Uh, the TV movie, The uh, uh, Man from Atlantis, with uh, Patrick Duffy. <laughs> wow, nineteen seventy-seven. I know, right? There's so many other. Seems like there's so many other more deserving television films like Helter Skelter and Guyana Tragedy that have never been oh, issued yeah. on Blu-ray. Why uh, hasn't they been issued? I know both of those that, need to you be. You would out. think that this year, especially, they'd reissue the Helter Skelter from '76 oh, yeah. or whatever year it was. 
Yeah, and last year they should have put out Guyana Tragedy because that was forty. Yeah. So that would have been perfect. And those are those are great. Like those are like landmark Emmy women Emmy winning, you know, yeah. television films that Warner Archive has the rights to because they're both Lorimar productions and they have the rights to both of those. But uh, so far. Uh, they've teased. And they're like, no, 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 no. We don't, we don't, we don't want to release that critically acclaimed shit. We 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 got to serve the Patrick Duffy completists. <laughs> <laughs> the, with Man from Atlantis. Well, I remember when this movie was being promoted on NBC. I'm I'm old enough to remember it. It was in the spring of '77, and uh, I didn't see it back then. So I finally caught up to it now, and it I. Uh, it really wasn't that good. It was I was bored a lot mm. of the time, and then, and it actually spun off into a thirteen episode uh, a TV series that only lasted thirteen episodes. But I really just it didn't do a whole lot for me. Uh, I know it, there are some fans of it, but uh, it just has the standard plot with uh, Victor Buono is a uh, madman trying to launch missiles from a to uh, from all of the world's nuclear submarines and you know Victor Buono's always fun to watch but even he can't save this so <laughs> but anyway no extras but uh anybody who's a fan of man from Atlantis or has a real feel for a certain type of nostalgia from the late 1970s network television <laughs> there you go um wow so Cleopatra Jones is another Warner Archive release starring Tamara Dobson, Bernie Casey, Brenda Sykes, and mm. Shelley Winters as the villain, Mommy. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that interesting? A drug trafficker. Wow. Uh, yeah. she- any movie with Shelley Winters as a drug trafficker has to be seen. Yeah, the one story I remember about Shelley Winters is um, they wanted her to audition for Awakenings to play De Niro's mother. Mm-hmm. And uh, she walked in the audition room and she sat in front of the director and she pulled out a bag and she out of the bag she pulled out one Oscar and set it right in front of the director. And then she reached in and pulled out the other Oscar and set it in front of the director. And she said, there's my audition. <laughs> yeah, but but uh, they didn't hire her. Wow. Mm. It's tough. I mean, I remember what what was it? Was it Betty Davis that put a full ad in the newspaper saying that she was available for work because no one yeah, was hiring sure her? Did. It's amazing. Yeah, she did. Ugh, makes you it sad. Really yeah, it it does happen though. Unfortunately, yeah. But um, Cleopatra Jones, uh, she's six feet two, two, six feet two of dynamite, and the hottest super agent ever is the tagline. So, anyway, no extras there. This was, this but, was uh, post. This was post Foxy Brown. I'm taking it right. Same year, actually. Same year. Really. And yeah, seventy three. And there was actually a um, a sequel, Cleopatra Jones and the Casino of Gold, or something like that. I think. So two, oh. so it was actually successful enough to spawn a sequel, which is uh, well, it's like Alan Quartermain. Uh, yeah, kind of <laughs> like that. Uh, anyway, and the other Warner Archive release is the Frank Tashlin comedy, uh, The Glass Bottom Boat, 
um, with Doris Day, and this is an incredible cast in this movie. If you're a fan of character actors from the 60s and 70s, I mean, this movie is loaded with them. It's uh, Doris Day, Rod Taylor, Arthur Godfrey, and John MacGyver, Paul Lind, Edward Andrews, Eric Fleming, Dom DeLuise, and Dick Martin. How about that? Plus, it also hmm. has a George Tobias and... Um, Oh, I'm trying to think of her name. The the one that put anyway, Mr. and Mrs. Kravitz from the Bewitched. They're in it as well. So they even and they play nosy neighbors. So <laughs> which is kind of funny. Wow. Uh, but yeah, this movie is just loaded, and it's you know it's Frank Tashlin who directed a lot of those Jerry Lewis movies, and he also did uh, Will Success Spoil Rock Hunter, which was released last month by Twilight Time, and you know a lot of his movies are. Um, uh, and he also did The Girl Can't Help It, the other Jane Mansfield. You know, his movies have a certain uh, type of slapstick, and if you're a fan of that stuff, it's it's a lot of fun. The Glass Bottom Boat, I, I enjoyed it. There's some ex- some featurettes on it, but, man, I just love watching those character actors. And um, and Paul Lind is in the movie In Drag in one scene, so uh, there's always that. <laughs> what more do you need? Wow. <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of home movies where he's in drag as well. Uh, I'm sure there are, yes. Absolutely. So, anyway, uh, so we'll move along to, um, let's see, we'll move on up to March 19th, and we have uh, a couple more, another Kino release, Far From Heaven, the Todd Haynes film. Um, They do have some of the Universal titles, and that's one they put out, which, of course, I adore that movie, of course. And then uh, Criterion has issued the, uh, the the film noir Detour from 1945, starring Tom Neal and um, Anne Savage, directed by Edward G. Ulmer. Uh, that's a Criterion. And then we have um, a couple other things here. Uh, Ned Kelly, the remake, the one with Heath Ledger from 2003. That's a Shout Select release. Uh, as the, and then we also have a, another Screen Factory release. Uh, the Witches, which is a Hammer film from 1965, 1966, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Joan Fontaine being um, uh, tangling with African witch doctors <laughs> as a, a new audio commentary. Uh, Hammer featurette here and trailer and still gallery. So uh, if you're a Hammer completist, there you go. Uh, also another yeah. uh, Scream Factory release, this one from 1945. Five. It's a uh, Boris Karloff in uh, the Robert Louis Stevenson story, The Body Snatcher, with, which also has Bella Lugosi. And, uh, yeah. That's uh, it's produced by Val Luton, who did Cat People, of course, and all that. And, uh, you know, it's a nice uh, new scan here of the film, new audio commentary. Uh, and there's an, a vintage audio commentary as well with uh, Robert Wise, who was one of the... Um, uh, he, I think he was the, the, yeah, he directed it actually, and he's he actually contributes a commentary here. Obviously, that's from the vault, as he's been deceased for a while. <laughs> and uh, trailer. He directed the body. Gallery. He directed the body snatcher. He sure did. Yes, that was one of his first uh, directorial efforts, I think. Well, I had no idea. Huh. Yeah, I remember yeah. reading about the body snatcher. The first time I read about it was in uh, was as a high schooler when I read. Uh, Stephen King's Dance Macabre book. Uh-huh. There's, uh huh. There was a lot of references to the under the radar horror films that I, I didn't know about at the time, and that was one of yeah. them. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's pretty effective. It's a nice little, you know, and it's nice to see Lugosi and uh, Karloff actually interacting with each other without the Universal Studios horror makeup on. Karloff does not deserve to smell my shit! Anyway, uh, we also have the 1986 uh, thriller. This is another Screen Factory release, Warning Sign. This is directed by uh, Hal Barwood of the Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins, who also wrote uh, Poltergeist. And uh, this one stars uh, Kathleen Quinlan, Yafet Koto, and Richard Dysart. And, um, you know, it's one of these uh, things where there's a, it's a biochemical, a bioweapon is uh, turning everybody exposed into a raging psychotic killer. Sam Waterston's also in there. So, um, yeah, this has a new uh, interview with uh, Hal Barwood and producer Jim Bloom and audio commentary with Barwood and um, photo galleries, TV spots, theatrical trailer. So, uh, warning sign is a Screen Factory mm. release there. And uh, we were talking about Pet Cemetery earlier. Well, the Paramount has issued a 30th anniversary edition with uh, new content, new new behind-the-scenes image galleries, uh, new interviews with Mary Lambert, um, and all the other uh, bonus features from previous editions ported over. It's also been issued on 4K as well. But the new transfer is is not just in 4K. There's the new transfer is also on the Blu-ray as well. So uh, for anybody who's a, who's a fan of the original Pet Cemetery, there you go. And another wow, uh, Kino release. 4K of the original Pets of 4K. Wow. I know, it's amazing. <laughs> but I guess the perfect time to tie it in, right? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the 1970 film Wanda has been issued by Criterion. You know, the only film directed by Barbara Loden. And, uh, of course, she died fairly young, uh, tragically so. I think of breast cancer about 10 years after this came out. But uh, uh, this is a movie that there have been a lot of, lot of de- lots of demand for it over the years. But uh, some nice new extras there. But, yep, but Criterion has added, uh, has added this one to their collection and uh, Born in East L.A., how about that? Directed by Cheech Marin, <laughs> written and directed by Cheech Marin, but uh, starring... Was like, that was like uh, 80, 88, 87? 87, yeah. And yeah. it was inspired by his uh, song parody of Born in the USA, which was Born in East L.A. And um, what makes this interesting is that it has a, a rare TV cut of the film with an extended ending. So you get the bonus TV version here, and there's new commentary by Cheech Marin, uh, new interviews with Cheech Marin and Paul Rodriguez and Kamala Lopez and theatrical trailer. And uh, this film also stars the recently deceased Jan Michael Vincent. So mm. I'd forgotten he was in this. <laughs> so, but this is, a, this is a Shout Select, actually, one of the Shout Select film releases. Uh, as is Brighton Beach Memoirs. Neil Simon's Brighton Beach Ugh. Memoirs is another <laughs> Blythe Danner and Bob Dishy and Jonathan Silverman and Judith Ivey. And <laughs> yeah, well, another uh, Kino release would be Lovers and Other Strangers from 1970. That stars, of course, uh, Gig Young, B. Arthur, Bonnie Bedelia, and Michael Brandon. And, um, you know, that's this is the movie that has the, uh, the song, um, uh, although it was a big hit for the Carpenters, um, 
uh, for all we know, comes from this film. And, uh, yeah, it's about the troubles of uh, a big wedding and all the ensuing troubles between the two families in preparation for the wedding. And, yeah, it's fine. I've seen it. It's it's pretty entertaining. But, uh, anyway, uh, so we'll get into the Twilight Time titles. And speaking of our L.A. trip, I just recently watched this since we got back. And, boy, this was a... This is a, a major L.A. movie, I think. Um, a lot of period, a lot of uh, great '70s L.A. locations in this one. The Big Fix with Richard Dreyfuss. Huh. And um, yeah, Susan Anspaugh and Bonnie Bedelia and John Lithgow and Fritz Weaver. Yeah, this movie, um, it's it's shot all over L.A. And I, with us having just returned, I really got a kick out of it. Because um, I saw a lot of places that we were at, except the way they looked in 1978 when this film was made. <laughs> right. The only difference. I'd be interested. I'd be interested in watching that movie. Is that that's not one that he did with Mazursky, is it? Or is it no, another director? This is Jeremy Paul Kagan. Oh. And uh, it was based on the uh, the novel by uh, Roger L. Simon. And it was the first movie he made after The Goodbye Girl, after he won his Oscar uh, with The Goodbye Girl. He It was the first thing he did. And he actually produced it, so he had a little clout there. And um, huh. Roger Simon had a, a series of novels uh, with this character that he plays in the movie, Moses Wine. And uh, this was su- supposed to be, I guess, the first of a series, but this was the only one they, that ever was made. But it's it's really good. It's it's a good it's a good movie. Um I pulled up the Pauline Kael review of it and and read it after I watched it just to see what she thought and she said that he he she said Richard Dreyfus is doing those kind of tricks where you feel like he's he's wanting somebody to pat him on the head like he's a good dog in this movie. <laughs> wow. But I thought he was good and I love Susan Anspaugh anyway and she's uh the movie has a couple of big surprises in it. Uh there's one major character that uh I'm not say who it is, but it turns up dead. You're kind of surprised by, by that, uh, and they they really develop them well, so it comes across as kind of a shock. But it's a, uh, you know, it's there's some humor in it, but it's uh there's kind of a wistfulness because his character is this uh, 60 former 60s radical, and he's trying to figure out who he is in the late 70s when things have changed and people are not protesting anymore, and he's uh, he's like a divorced dad, but he's like he's like those. You know those detectives from those noir films of the '40s, except he's 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 uh, a divorced dad and he has to take his kids with him on his while he's invest, doing his investigations there in the back seat because it's his time to be to have custody of them and <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know. And uh, it's and like I said, the movie the whole movie is shot in L.A. and it's just tons and tons and tons of uh, of locations that we saw. Uh, so yeah, I'd recommend it for that reason if nothing else. The Big Fix. Richard Dreyfuss. Okay, I'll definitely I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, and um, yeah, the Quiller Memorandum is a uh, espionage film uh, with George Siegel as an American spy signed by British handlers to infiltrate neo-Nazi cells in Berlin. It's directed by Michael Anderson, and uh, this is uh, another Twilight Time release. It has an audio commentary and theatrical trailer. So uh, that's from 1966, and then we also have The River's Edge with uh, Ray Milland as a, a bank robber on the run, and he's really mm-hmm. nasty and menacing in this film. And uh, and it's uh, Ray Milland and Anthony Quinn and Deborah Paget, and this is 1957, and 
anyway, there's a, a few extras here, audio commentary and uh, the original trailer. So, uh, yeah, and then the other Twilight Time release is The Whole Town's Talking, directed by John Ford. And this is a, a crime film, a gangster film, directed by John Ford, which stars uh, Edward huh. G. Robinson and uh, Gene Arthur, which you don't think of John Ford doing gangster films, but this one's from 1935, and uh, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. So, Well, in some ways they're like modern westerns, the gangster That's true, genre. yeah. And it's kind of a drama comedy. It's about a mild-mannered clerk and a gangster who happen to look almost exactly alike. And Edward G. Robinson plays both parts. So it's kind of fun to watch him play, you know, play two different parts in the same film. Um, so, you know, fun. it's kind of fun. Um, another Screen Factory release is The Deadly Mantis from 1957, another one of those giant monster movies. And the, uh-huh. the title tells you everything you need to know, uh, but uh, they do include the audio comment, an audio commentary, and the Mystery Science Theater episode of the Deadly Mantis, which is uh, you may just want to skip the actual movie and just watch that because it's probably <laughs> you'll get some laughs out of it. But now I used to yeah. watch the, the, the yeah this was one of those movies that turned up all the time when I was a kid on our local television station, so I have fond memories of watching it as a, as a little boy. So it's uh, yeah, last it's year. Fun. Last year, I re- uh, last year I rewatched them because they were playing oh, on yeah. TCM. Yeah, which is I guess considered the classic of that genre. Uh, it is. I, I guess yeah. there's there are several several that could be in the higher echelon of that whole genre, which was essentially about us dealing with the uh, the threat of nuclear holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, and I I. I guess if it was on, I'd watch it again, but I've stayed away from that movie Tarantula because as scared as I am of spiders, and I, I do remember that image of that spider coming over the hill, uh, <laughs> and I just, it never left my mind. I'm, I'm afraid to watch it again. <laughs> That's too funny. But I think, I think Tarantula was Clint Eastwood's first movie. It was either it was. that or them. Was it Tarantula? Yeah. Yeah, it's Tarantula. Yeah, he he had a contract with Universal, and that's a Universal. I think them is a Warner Brothers, but uh, yeah, okay. Universal. He was like he a fi- he was like a fighter fighter pilot. That's right. Yeah, he sure is. Yeah, and it's funny yeah. you mention that because that comes out next month. <laughs> Screen Factory. Tarantula. Yeah, it sure does. Yep. Oh, good lord. <laughs> yeah, it is. But that's considered to be one of the better of of that genre too, uh, Tarantula. It's uh, it's usually ranked right up there with them. So, uh, yeah, it's, it well, maybe I'll maybe good. I'll give it another shot. I don't know. I don't know if I got the bravery. I'm sure I'll laugh at it now, but uh, yeah, man, it traumatized yeah. me as a kid. It's fun though. I enjoy it. I, I like it. It's 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 actually pretty good. So uh, it's it's always been one of my favorites of that of that uh, type of film. Yeah, and uh, another. This is one more keynote. Suppose they give a suppose they gave a war and nobody came. This has Brian Keith, Tony Curtis, Ernest Borgnine, and Suzanne Plachette and Tom Ewell. But um, I never saw this one. Uh, I remember the title would pop up from time to time, but I never. It's one I never saw. Well, that's a lot for a marquee. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Well, they got a couple other. Uh, there's another uh, Kino release here. They've done a uh, restoration on a for speaking of Clint Eastwood for a few dollars more been reissued, mm. and they've done a new uh, scan of that. I think it's a new 4K scan, actually, of it. They've been who, who's done it? That's Kino. Kino okay. Lorber. Yeah, and um, tell you what, Kino is prolific. I mean, yeah, they, Kino, they, they, they really pump. They don't out. fool around. No, <laughs> not at all. No, they don't. There's a there's a whole other slew of uh, their titles too here. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> um, there's uh, the Tarnished Angels. Starring Rock Hudson and uh, Dorothy Malone and Robert Stack, and this was um, one of those Douglas Sirk films from the. This one's 1957, huh. I believe. Yeah, this was a, this was another Kino release, and they put out a bunch of those road films, those Bob Hope films, Road to Utopia, Road to oh, Zanzibar, wow. and Road to Singapore. All of those they pumped those out as well, and the 1973, The Iceman Cometh. Which uh, has two Jason cuts. Robards? This is the one that has uh, Jeff Bridges, Lee Marvin, Frederick yes. March, and Robert Ryan. Okay. And Bradford Dillman and Sorrel yeah. Book. <laughs> Sorrel yeah, Book. I remember. I remember that that was a real early Bridges. Uh, um, is that Lou? That's not Lou Matt, is it? Frankenheimer. Yeah. Okay, Frankenheimer. Frankenheimer. Okay. Close enough. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's in the same wheelhouse. It is, but yeah, this has a uh, extended cut of the movie, which is uh, I think it's about four and a half hours. I mean, it's really long, but um, mm. yeah, yeah, it's generally considered to be a good movie, though it gets it's always gotten high marks, and I did not get a review copy of it. Unfortunately, I, I do. I, it's one I've always wanted to see, but I just never. That's right, uh, Lumet. Lumet is Long Day's Journey into Night. That's correct. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the get one. My, and which is also an O'Neill. It is. My O'Neill's mixed up. Yeah. You're close. Like I said. See, I'm just I'm just writer. describing how my brain works when when I'm when I'm wrong. There there is a logic to it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there is. But uh, another Kino release is uh, no. I'm sorry, this is not a Kino release. Uh, we talk about those Sony on-demand titles that they put out. Here's one for you. How about this? The 1987 film The Squeeze with Michael Keaton. Oh. <laughs> uh, I just remember seeing this in yeah. the theater when it came out. I've not seen it since. Uh, I would not have gone except one of my buddies in high school. He talked me into it. He's like, oh, this looks good. And I remember not being impressed by it at all. Yeah, uh, there's a story... I remember reading in premiere years ago. It was around the time it was to promote the, the clean and sober that Michael Keaton did clean and sober. <laughs> and uh, Bruce Willis was desperate to be in the in clean and sober. And uh, and, and he had worked previously with Glenn Gordon Karen, uh, so he thought he had an end. But Glenn Gordon Karen did not want to work with Bruce Willis anymore. Um, wow! And uh, so he had offered it to Michael Keaton, and Michael Keaton had turned it down and. Bruce Willis met Michael Keaton at a bar, and he said, look, uh, you're crazy if you turn this part down uh, to Michael Keaton. Mm -hmm. And Michael Keaton thought, you know, and, you know, he looked at himself in a billboard for the squeeze. And he was like, what the <laughs> hell am I doing? I need, I, I, need, I need to do clean and sober. 
And yeah, it worked out for both of them because Bruce Willis ended up doing Die Hard that same year in '88. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's clean and sober. So it's true. It all worked out for everybody. This is not, if exactly he had taken right. if he had taken clean and sober, he might not have had the Die Hard uh, yeah. opportunity. It's true. Yeah, and uh, yes, it's it's that's funny. Um, so another uh this well yeah this is another Kino I think Kino distributes this one Kingdom of the Spiders which is actually a code oh, red uh, <laughs> William Shatner <laughs> speaking of your your disdain for spiders um Ugh. this yeah now I will this, say that, uh just just a few weeks ago I was on YouTube and I looked at the uh, cuz apparently they they issued this uh, in another edition with special features, because I did watch the special features for Kingdom of the Spiders on YouTube, mm-hmm. um, which include uh, a long-form interview with William Shatner talking about the movie and how he had a say in the casting, and he was talking about working with the spiders and the apocalyptic ending of the movie. And uh, yeah, there are there are some movie some moments in that movie that are truly horrifying. Mm-hmm. That movie has a has a niche. I mean, there's there's some people that uh, think it's a really entertaining TV movie, which it is, I guess. Yeah, I I I, I can't be rational about it because it, it's got spiders in it. I I, I can't tell you if it's that <laughs> great or not. Yeah, it it actually was a theatrical release. Uh, of course, most people know it from television, you know, because uh, that's where it, you know we all saw it. But uh, oh, it, I it thought actually... it was only theatrical. I, it was theatrical in the U.S. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Believe it or not. Oh wow! It was a I didn't know that. Release. Yeah, it was. It, uh, but you know, it it was one of those drive-in staples. You know, it turned up in drive-ins and stuff. Most people saw it on you know their local independent channels or whatever that ran it. So oh, that's God. true. It might. I can't well imagine. I can't imagine. I can't imagine watching that outside in your car, and imagining <laughs> imagining fucking spiders crawling up your legs. I can't imagine that. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. It's, it's got uh, a hor- I don't know. The, you know the horrifying scene to me, even more than seeing the spider on William Shatner's face, and he he actually talks about it in the special features what they what they put on his face to attract that spider to his face, but the horrifying scene for me is the uh, is the little girl indoors and the, the the mother that's bitten to death by spiders outside and he's she's screaming to her daughter, it's just awful. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. This is the. It really is. It really is. I uh, I find it to be quite effective. I I've always enjoyed it uh, for what it is. You know, it's um, it's like I said. If you're not a, if, if spiders give you the creeps, it's definitely not a movie you want to uh, to watch. But but if you can yeah. get past that, it's like it's, it's like a western version of the birds. Yeah, it is. That's true. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and it does, like you said, it does have some effective moments. So, uh, yeah, there's a uh, and just a couple of new newer releases, and then that'll be it. Uh, Creed two's out. Uh, Mary Poppins Returns, mm-hmm. Aquaman, Green Book, Burning, and the Miseducation of Cameron Post. So those are a couple of new and Stan and Ollie, the uh, biopic of, uh, you know, uh, Laurel and Hardy, which is kind of fun. Uh, kind of enjoyable. Yeah. I, I did enjoy it. So, the Miseducation yep, of Cameron Post. That's that's on. Uh, it's on HBO now. I saw it playing on HBO last night. 
So it's, it's yeah. just coming on Blu-ray? Yeah, it just came out on Blu-ray. Uh, yeah, MVD is the company that put it out. But I didn't. Uh, I haven't haven't gotten around to it yet. I it, the plot is so similar to that other one. Um, mm-hmm. Boy uh, erased. Little, your boy erased. Yeah, yeah. It's the same plot. So I, I wonder how how this one's different from that one. I'm I'm curious to see how that how that plays. It's a girl. But, yeah, that's true. That that's the big. The, the big girl erased, I guess. The, yeah, like, girl erased. Like, yeah, could be the sequel to Girl Interrupted. <laughs> girl erased. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, Burning is the movie everybody was talking about at the end of la- end of last year. You know, that was a lot of people were saying that was they made a lot of top ten lists. I finally caught up to that. Right. I just wasn't quite impressed with it. I I, I thought it's that, okay. Is that the one that Stephen Ye- Stephen Yeo's in? Is he in that one? That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's it's a little. I don't know. It's 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 too long. It's like two hours and twenty five minutes. And you were talking about dragged across concrete uh, being a little overlong. In this one, I felt the same way. I felt like it's over length. They could have gotten this story told and probably lost an hour, and it wouldn't have hurt the movie. And it just. I don't know, and it's it's just a there's a little there's a mystery at the center of the movie that never really gets resolved, and I, I don't know. I just I was a little unsatisfied with it. I, I was really expecting something big from this movie based on what everybody's been saying about it, and it just didn't really didn't quite make the grade for me. But um, mm. anyway, but a lot of people loved it. 